The year is 1920, and Heron Spaziert, the Somnambulist, will see you now. The movie, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Everyone and welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I'm Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where we are endeavoring to find the hundred greatest films ever made. And when we do, we're gonna blast those films up into space. Why? Because we can. Because if Bezos it's there. can do it, we can do it. All right. We're not even gonna go up there, but I'm a bald man just like Bezos, and I want things in space. Me, movies. What else, Amy? Do you want to go to space? Hell yeah, I want to go to space. I'd go to space today. I'd go to space dressed like I am right now. I'd go to space barefoot. <laughs> well, this is the second week in our revisitation of the horror genre. Oh. Uh, it's something that we are calling Scare-tober. But before we get into that, I have to say the ripple effect of our special season-ending uh, episode where we decided what films to go to space is still... Uh, causing a lot of drama online. People really feel like we missed the boat on Foreigner Blows and Alien. And I got to tell you, as we move away from certain things, I feel like maybe we were too harsh. Then I go back about Jurassic Park. and I, I'm, I'm wrestling, Amy. I'm wrestling. I, I feel pretty confident in what we chose, but I definitely have been thinking a lot about Alien, but I'm also remembering my reaction to Alien. Then I'm thinking about 400 Blows, and I I know that we want a Truffaut, and that has to be the best Truffaut, right? I mean... Well, here's here's where I'm at. Here's where I'm at. I think the day we did the Alien episode, we weren't really in love with it. Then we reflected, and we still weren't really in love with it. So I am okay, Blasting it out of the airlock. I really think that we both felt that way at the time. We haven't really changed. We're nervous, but we are being true to Mm. how we felt when we really were in the thick of it, watching Alien, watching Aliens, analyzing it, talking about it. I believe how we felt then. I still feel that way. And that's why out of the airlock, goodbye. And, you know, Amy, you know, I've been holding back my Ridley Scott pick uh, because I believe that Last Duel is going to be the one that just pops right on the list immediately. <laughs> just bam. Just a I direct mean, shot. I'm open. But as <laughs> for the 400 blows, yes, I do think, and I let it slide at the moment. I know that you really love the 400 blows. I also really admire the 400 blows. I really loved it when we were watching it, you know, going back and feeling how fresh it is in my memory. That was one of our earlier films. And so I think it, mm-hmm. I had maybe lost a grip of how much I adored that movie. You brought it up. My headspace, to be honest, was in the calculation of, can I convince him to put Trip to the Moon on space? What am I doing? What am I doing? And I was thinking so tactically that you said, I don't know if this is the best Truffaut. Maybe we should watch more Truffaut. And I was like, I'll let him stay there because maybe we'll watch more Truffaut. But now that I think about it, I think I made a mistake. I should have, I should have in that moment stuck up for at least putting it on right now. Well, here's my issue with it. I was looking at that genre and feeling very connected to Days and Confused and Clueless and Fast Times. And I started to really think about that genre or that section of film and go, I can only pick one. What is the one that I would pick 
to watch over and over again. And I feel like Fast Times rose above the rest because I felt like it it encapsulated many things that all those films did um, well. And there was an element to it that just felt maybe even it was the most representative to me. I, I don't know. So that that's why I think 400 Blows fell off the list. But I am okay with making an addendum and putting 400 Blows back on the list. I think we should. I think we should. And I and I feel like, okay, let's shake hands right now. It's on, mm-hmm. right? 400 it's Blows. It's on. It's on. People All say right. we agree back too back. much. But I think what people don't understand is we do agree but there's a lot of bartering going on before we get to the table because you don't want to hear two people argue for an hour. We're we're coming to the table knowing <laughs> there's a little bit of wiggle room on either side. I mean, should we be those podcast hosts who do couples therapy? Oh God, no! Please, no <laughs> one wants that. No one wants that. I will say that um, the other one that got a lot of heat was Ganja and Hess. People did not like that. Uh, I wanted it on the list. They feel like it doesn't belong on the list. But you know what? Fuck them. That's what I say. Keeping it on the list because it still is one of the weirder, interesting films that visually I'm thinking about. And I feel like, and I know this is a a bold, broad statement, but of all the films that we have done, I often go back to 2001, a film I did not like until I saw it in the theater with the sound. And it just, boom, it got me. With me and With you and Red Vines. Yeah. yeah, and um, and the same way about Ganja and Hess. I just think about it a lot, but maybe I've just... Anyway, I'm not willing to get that one off the list just yet. No, um, although I should say that I actually really screwed up. Um, when I was reading the poll, it turns out I read it wrong. Do you remember how uh, I said yes. 82% of listeners wanted Ganja mm-hmm. and Hess on the spa- uh, into space? It was actually 82% of listeners did not want Ganja and Hess anywhere wow. near our list. So well, they have been uh, strongly overruled. But if you're going by the list, then you would know that Alien is the head and shoulders tip top pick of our listeners. I mean, that is what they wanted on the list. So by not putting Alien on the list, even though we didn't like it or we didn't feel like it belonged there, our listeners, the people who make this whole show possible, they did. And do we ignore them? Well, at the risk of being chased into my castle by people with pitchforks, Yes. Yes, we do. Sorry. Hi, I'm running and hiding now. I'm open to it. I just think that if I was to put a duel, I mean, I I once said, put the thing next to Alien. I think the thing is better. I think put the thing next to Halloween. I think Halloween is better. If we're talking about monster in the house type of films, like, and we're, we're only picking one or whatever, that would be my argument against Alien. I know it's different directors. I know it's a lot of different things. To pick one carpenter is even really uh, a difficult task, ultimately. But I, but that's really where I come down on Alien and the reason why I s- pulled away from it. And and we'll continue to fight for that movie in Tuscany with, um, you know, Russell Crowe. I feel like that may be the Ridley <laughs> Scott that we need. That may be the one. I mean, again, you can make an argument for Blade Runner, too. So uh, there's a lot to get into, but I think we've just agreed to get 400 blows on our list. We've added one more to the list. And last week's episode of The Exorcist, every now and then, don't you feel like we hit one out of the park? I I mean, one that kind of connects with people. I didn't feel it in the moment, but listening to people talk about The Exorcist online, I feel like people really wanted to engage in a conversation about this film. And it just shows 
I think both of our instincts are correct. So that's why you should trust us about Ganjin Hess that, you know, this should be on the AFI list. The fact that the French connection is on the list and not the exorcist is truly mind boggling. It truly is. I still think that that is one of the greatest mysteries of that list, to be honest, just absolutely befuddling. But I guess when we went into the critical reviews of exorcist and seeing that at the time people are like, I don't know, this isn't who I thought you were. And this isn't what I thought you'd make in that mixed response. I suppose there's just a lingering hangover, man. But now we are clear-headed and it is a very high contender for me as we go into season three. So as we go into today's episode, I want to just talk about something before we even unpack it. Um, Last season, we talked about Frankenstein and Frankenstein being, you know, I think the way that we framed it, one of the first horror films. But I think that today we can really make the case that this might be one of the first horror films. Very, very, very much, at least in features. There were some Melies haunted house movies, but they're Mm -hmm. only about two minutes long uh, from like the 1890s where I'm an evil man in a castle and my head's falling off and you're grabbing my head, dun, dun, dun. But when it comes to actual features, extended things, movies telling stories, With Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, we are pretty much going to the beginning because at this moment, Hollywood isn't making horror films. They're making, you know, romantic movies, comedies, epics, historical films. They're making all sorts of films here, but this has to come from Germany and it shakes up everything. Well, Amy, I cannot wait to Evspulen. Is that German? The best I can do with (laughs) it. The year is 1920. The 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution is passed, outlawing the production and consumption of alcohol. Raggedy Ann gets her Raggedy Andy. The League of Women Voters is founded during the National American Women's Suffrage Association Convention in Chicago. Northern Ireland is created. Pancho Villa surrenders to the Mexican government, thus ending the Mexican Revolution. And the fourth wave of the Spanish flu in New York and parts of the Midwest is twice as deadly as when it first hit the States. I hope that's not, uh, uh, you know, the past showing us what we're in store for. But um, the hot movies of this year are Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, The Gollum, Sex, and today's film, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Amy, who's in it? Who made it? What's it about? Give me the deets. The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, or in German, Das Cabinet des Dr. Caligari. Uh, it is directed by Robert Veed, and it is written by first-time screenwriters Hans Janowitz and Carl Mayer. Uh, when I say written, I mean that Hans and Carl wrote the middle bulk of the film. But this film has a framing device that starts at the beginning, comes back at the end, kind of a Forrest Gumpian, let me tell you a story, says a guy on a bench. And that was by kind of the directors, kind of the producers. Nobody can quite agree except on the fact that the writers, Hans and Carl, hated it for reasons that we shall discuss. The man sitting on the bench is Francis. Uh, Francis is played by the actor of Friedrich Führer. And the story that he is telling is about this time that this doctor named Caligari came to his tiny town with this carnival sideshow act. And his act is a sleeping man named Cesare. But as soon as Caligari and Cesare show up, the townspeople start to die because Cesare, in a trance state, is being sent by Dr. Caligari to stab them to death. And Francis, here on this bench, is telling us the story about how he sounded the alarm and saved the day. 
Let's listen to a little bit of the score to set the mood. As you hear this music, imagine the sleepwalker, Cesare, opening his eyes for the first time in a circus tent and women starting to scream. Dr. Caligari is famous for three things. First, yes, it is arguably the first feature-length horror film. Second, the story that Francis is telling us from the bench, there is a twist ending. This is a framing device that reveals it might not be true. Francis himself might be the person who is insane. And third, the film looks insane. I mean, nothing in Caligari is natural. Everything is like painted, it's stark, it's twisted, it's narrow, it's impossible alleys and spiky trees and crooked windows. Everything is harsh and bizarre. And that makes this film the first and most pure example of German expressionism. Uh, One of my absolute personal favorite aesthetics. Um, When this film came out on February 26th, 1920, people were very polarized, but most were stunned by the exotic world that it created kind of like the number one song on the charts. It is called Dardanella, and it is by Ben Selvin's Orchestra. Now, this popular version we're about to hear is wordless, but the original lyrics, and I will say uh, right now they are very outdated to modern ears, were about a man in love with a girl that he considered exotic, a girl from Turkey. And they went something like, Oh, sweet Dardanella, prepare the, wide, the wedding wine. There'll be one girl in my harem when you are mine. kind of sounds like it could be a Black Eyed Peas song. Amy, you know what? If we just update those lyrics a little bit, we get a producer on the line. I think we got a hit. Oh, I think we got a, you know. <laughs> Prepare the wedding wine. This is what I love. This is what I love about the show. When you start breaking it down Fergie style. Um, <laughs> you know, before we start talking about the movie, Amy, I think it's important to just set the time and place of this film and really kind of unpack what German expressionism is and means. Um, I think a lot of the times in film terms are thrown around, but we don't really go deeper into that. Like what, what is this a reaction to? What is this style uh, mean and how different is it from what people are used to seeing? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So German expressionism, like, If you have seen Dr. Caligari, if you have seen pictures of it, um, kind of imagine what it looks like in your head as we talk about this look and where it comes from. And if you haven't uh, yet, well, you're going to really love it. Uh, There's a bunch of Dr. Caligari movies on YouTube. And also just picture early Tim Burton, black and white, crazy angles. That's not exactly it, but it's in the family, you know? Yeah, it has a a very two-dimensional look. I think, uh, you know, I was picturing like, 
what Rushmore was in the sense of it looks like a very well-produced stage play, right? Not Rushmore the movie, but the plays that Max does in the films. Like it is creating a lot of depth and uh, dynamic uh, images, but with very two-dimensional sets. Yeah, which makes sense because expressionism comes to film first through the art world, through painting and through um, theater, because it was kind of like a dramatic artificial look. I mean, to kind of imagine, you know, when you think about painting at the end of the 1800s, the beginning of the 1900s, a lot of what you imagine is, you know, kind of Monet, like Impressionism, flowers, trees, bucolic imagery. And German Expressionism is a thing that arises in war. And it basically says, like, the way that we see this world, this bucolic world, doesn't exist. And it, it's kind of um, a visual break from reality. Like, all of the softness that we have pretended that the world is, is leading us off track. And German Expressionism comes in with, like, bold lines, stark angles, kind of saying that reality no longer applies to us. Like, kind of what I think of when I'm, I picture German Expressionism is I imagine being a person in Germany in like 1918, 1919, walking through like the cities that you used to know and things have been bombed and like trees are sticking at crazy angles and windows are askew and roofs don't make sense anymore. And you're looking at a world that you did know and now it's all broken and unfamiliar. And that's kind of what German expressionism captures, this sense of what should be a comfortable bed, what should be a comfortable bedroom, a chair, what should be your neighborhood town square suddenly is like sharp and uncomfortable. There's nowhere soft to relax. There's nowhere to be. And it captures this feeling of being on edge, of feeling like you can't trust what you're looking at. And, you know, there's another element here as well, the practical element that's coming into play, because at this point, electricity was strictly rationed in post-World War I Germany. So, because they didn't have the ability to use a lot of lights, what they did was they painted light beams on backdrops. And because they couldn't build expensive sets, they were on these confined sets that forced uh, the director to use these unusual angles. So there was something in this that was making the best out of a bad situation, which also creates an incredibly interesting style. And I think underneath the film, and this is me doing a little bit of reading, uh, about the time, you know, there is this idea about the world that we live in and this, you know, irrational authority. And this, there's a lot of people out there that say this is a subconscious need in German society for a tyrant. And they have this obedience to authority and an unwillingness to rebel against authority. And in a way, this film represents, uh, you know, maybe uh, a guidepost to why someone like Hitler could come to power, because even though they want to rebel against it, they lean to it a little bit as well. Yeah, there's actually a really kind of landmark book written that's called like From Caligari to Hitler. Oh, wow. That takes some of what you see in the film, specifically the part that we were talking about, the Hans and Karl part. Um, let's talk about their part, because like Hans Janowitz and Karl Mayer who wrote this movie, you know, they're not film guys, uh, but they are 
pacifists who are really scarred from just going through World War One. Like Janowitz, he was an officer in the German military. He was incredibly bitter about it. Uh, Meyer, Karl Meyer, pretended to get to be crazy to get out of having to join the service, but that meant that he had to do all of these examinations by he a military psychiatrist to try to make sure that he was crazy. And that actually is the basis for the doctor in the movie. Exactly. So they wrote this story that was about a guy and everything is wrong in his town. And there's this doctor who shows up who hypnotizes people to kill. So it's like kind of this idea of who are the leaders that we trust and are they hypnotizing us to become deadly machines? Is that what they tried to do to all of us young men who didn't want to serve in the war? Well, that to me is so interesting because this idea of you are not in control of what you want to do. If you are a pacifist at that point, you had to be someone who fought. And I imagine the first world war, because it was so giant, it, it must've shaken people to the core. I think we're coming out or we're still in it. However you want to view what we're going through right now with coronavirus, this idea that when something that affects such a large group of people is in play, it has these reverberations, you know, whether or not that's people not wanting to take their jobs, uh, you know, that are shitty back. And, you know, we are finding that there are, you know, basically stores that cannot open because people are like, I I don't want to waste my life there anymore. So I can see how after getting out of a war, wrestling with this idea that you were made to be something that you weren't this monster, you were essentially, um, programmed against your will. Uh, And that to me is so interesting. And I think that that speaks to a lot of what we look at in modern day horror as well. This idea of, you know, the duality of who we are, you know, whether or not like we can present one way, but there's thoughts, you know, evil thoughts behind us. If you look at a film like Malignant, which just came out, which is absolutely uh, bananas and amazing and crazy. Like we're always wrestling with this idea of like, what is a horror inside us that, you know, we're, we're either holding back or is, is trying to get out. You know, I think we're, we're constantly dealing with that in horror, not all horror, but there's a lot of this idea that, you know, there is something that can come out and, and hurt and kill everybody. And we wouldn't even know it, or it's this, this desire inside of us. Yeah, no, you're right. Like, cause I think a lot of horror is really about the question why do bad things happen? You know, like, did the devil make you do it? Like yesterday, is it the devil? Are you just crazy? Like, or is it, have you been hypnotized by somebody? Are you under somebody else's control? Have you been created like Frankenstein? Like, do people who do bad things, are they bad? What is happening? Or movies that really scare me, where people do bad things just because, you know, the Halloween Michael Myers of it all. Like, right. There is no rhyme or reason. Right. There is no rhyme or reason. In here, there very much is an explanation in the middle story. You know, like people do bad things because authority has gone insane and it's brainwashing you to be a killer, which to me, it's a fascinating story, like absolutely at this moment in Germany. But it's a fascinating story today. Like I was thinking Caligari today is like, why? Who is behind the rise of the alt-right? Like what is going on? Who is like pulling the strings? Or if you're like a crazy 
anti-vaxxer person, I can imagine you watching this movie and being like, Caligari is like Dr. Fauci, man. You know, like Cesare is going to be like, your friend is going to get swollen testicles and they'll predict it and then it'll happen. Like you can read this movie from all angles of the problem, you know, you know and, and that's what I think is so relevant of it. Like I want to, as we're talking about it, I, I want to be so clear that like, it's not a movie about it. I mean, it's read through the lens of being a movie about Germany and it absolutely was, but I think it's really about humanity. Like people get brainwashed. Germany did it famously very awfully twice in the first 50 years of this century, but it, it's a it's a human story. I also think that there's this idea at play about insanity and sanity. Like, where is the line? I, one of the most interesting things about this film is when you're watching it, or at least the first time I saw it, I'm looking at it and going, oh my God, these sets are amazing. What an interesting way to you know, to create something that is unnerving and it feels uh, spooky and dreamlike. And then when you actually realize it's a dream, but you've been believing that it's actually real the entire time, I think it makes you, the audience, question, what do I believe? Am, am I, because I think insane people believe that they are following the truth and and everybody believes that they're following the truth. No one thinks I'm insane so I'm, this is what I believe, right? Like, so I think this idea of blurring that line between insanity and sanity is actually incredibly interesting as far as the prank it kind of plays on the audience. We're, we're led to believe one thing, and this is 1920. So to pull the rug out from underneath it, to kind of have a Kaiser Soze moment where, you know, you, you were following the wrong character, you bought the lie. It, it makes you question everything. And it, and it actually makes the movie... 10 times more interesting on a rewatch because uh, this is the second time I've seen this film. And so watching it, knowing the ending um, is even more fascinating. It feels like Wizard of Oz, but like a horror version of Wizard of Oz. <laughs> I was thinking it felt like the movie that we can't stop talking about for some reason, which is Inception. It's like you're literally going inside Francis's crazy dream. And in a way, it kind of seems to explain like why everything in his head is insane. Like you've stepped inside a crazy brain and that's why it looks so wild. And, and it looks, and that's why everything looks like you shouldn't trust how this person's brain is telling you this memory. Like if you're going inside Francis's memory of what happened in his town and all of the windows are crooked and none of the sidewalks look like they work, like is the movie telling us from the beginning that we shouldn't be trusting Francis? Right. And it plays that kind of prank on you. I mean, which is, I mean, there's two things happening here that I find really interesting because you can't reconcile them and they're both interesting. Like the first is that if the original writers want to tell a story about how authority is insane, you add this framing device to the beginning and end that's like, well, actually the guy telling the story is the person that's crazy. Then you're basically saying, oh, well, then authority is right. It, the writers were like, what are you talking about? That is not yeah. the movie you wanted to make. You're saying, like, we were making exactly the opposite point. And now you're saying that we should just trust authority because the guy who's complaining is the crazy one. And that's why they were furious. I mean, can you imagine? Well, I think there's something really interesting about making something during a movement. And I don't know how this actually plays out. And I should probably be more versed in the art world. But, you know, I think it's very easy to label a movement after it's all happened instead of 
when you're in it because you just have artists who are making, it's not like, oh, we all make something, you know, it's like they are, they're all reacting to something and there's a style that's being used, but everyone's a little bit different. And I, I feel like before this film comes out, much of the acting in German silent films are, they're expressionistic. They are expressionistic, right? But this is thematically expressionistic, right? This is, this is actually, I think, pushing forward not only um, a look, but a theme about what the movement is. And in many ways, I think this articulates the, the push and pull that we were just talking about, this idea of being a tool or revolting against authority. Like, whereas things before this weren't really doing that past the look. Does that make sense? Well, I think kind of what's going on mm-hmm. is that, yeah, like you're absolutely right. I mean, if you ask me right now, what cultural artistic movement are we living in? I'd be like, I have no idea. Right. Right. Because there's these waves that happen. Like you exist in a moment and then you become aware enough of something that you're like, oh, that's a trend. But trends are never words you really love. I'd be like, oh, the trend right now in art that I seem to be seeing a lot is like neon font colors written in crooked angles designed to look deliberately ugly. And we don't really have a word for that, but it feels like a trend we're living in. And when it's a trend, then you get kind of like, Possessive about it or judgmental about it? Like right now, like if I saw somebody, a runway show where Valentina was like creating dresses that looked like memes of possums screaming at you, I'd be like, (laughs) God, he's just selling out, you know? And like, oh, I'm so over this art trend, even though it's kind of just begun and we don't know what it means yet. Or like when grunge started, grunge exists and then But it wasn't like, it wasn't like Nirvana was- like, oh, I like Temple of the Dog, so we're going to make music like that. It was like, no, this is a scene that was going on in Seattle right. that then is a light is shined on it. I mean, obviously, right. no, we but, all lived yeah. through Bayhem, which was one of the greatest movements of cinema. You know, um, that's the Michael yeah. Bay. And- oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it, that's that's the known. That's the most known. That's more famous than romantic comedy as a genre. But, you know, like when grunge sort of got co-opted. Yeah. by movies and by fashion, then it immediately felt like a trend. And then you looked down on it. But now from our distance, we can look back at the 90s with fresh eyes and analyze it in a different perspective. Well, isn't there like, that joke about the New York where... Times that the New York Times always writes about a trend right as it's dying? It's like yeah. everyone's wearing trucker hats, you know, and it's it's like they're, you know, I think by the time that you label something as cool and that everyone's doing it, it's almost at the end of it because the cool people who started it are, have moved off of it. You know, once, once the thing is in target, which by the way, don't get me wrong. I love target, but I mean, obviously every company is going to try to capture and capitalize on something that is cool and interesting, but the original thing can never really be topped or co-opted because it's like, that's because it is incredibly unique and original. Exactly. And so that's kind of the tricky position that something like Caligari is in when it comes out is mm-hmm. it's the it looks like the first co-opter, I guess. OK, because, you know, it wasn't written to be an expressionist film like the um, Carl and Hans didn't write it that way. They just wrote like their film about a crazy psychiatrist who's making people making a, a hypnotist guy kill people. And then the producers were the people who are like, let's make it cool looking. 
you know, and they reached out to designers and the designers like, yeah, let's go nuts. And the producer's like, okay, that's really nuts, but I'm totally fine with it. Because in Germany at this time, there was a culture of your set is almost the most important part of your movie. You're here in America. It was like your movie stars are the most important part. But in Germany, it was really set driven. Like they loved cool sets. And so that this was an artistic movement, they just absolutely embraced it. It's like making, I don't know, Johnny Mnemonic or something. They're like, go for it, man. Like if that's what the cool kids are into, we're going to do it. That's really fascinating. I did not know that. Right. But now that it's 100 years later, we look back on this as though it was a set movement that everybody was behind at the time. And we see Caligari as the forefronter because, yeah, right after this comes movies like like the Gollum, you know, like Nosferatu, Metropolis, M. And we put German expressionism then together in this bucket because now we feel like we understand it. And we're like, this is what you meant. And this is how you were feeling. And this is why you did it. And then people, you know, also read a little bit further into it. And they're like, I look at these films and we understand how Hitler existed. And I'm like, okay, these movies didn't know that this was going to happen again. But, you know, you when you put something in context, you're like, it all makes sense and I have solved it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so I've, I've always feel weird doing that to, to art, but I love the look of German expressionism. And I love th- seeing how we in America like stole the parts that we wanted to create film noir when we were making, Mm -hmm. when we were dealing with war and poverty here in America, like in the thirties and forties, we were like, we're angry. We don't trust society anymore. We're really cynical. Everything sucks. Ta-da. Now we have a bunch of shadows and crazy angles because you have given us a language to express our own feelings. Well, and and I think we're we're talking about the same idea of, of the line between sanity and insanity, you know, especially when it comes to murder, right? Yeah, no, I love that idea that noir is unearthing the seedy side of America. Uh, uh, you know, what don't we see? What's going on behind the closed doors? Who are these people that appear one way but may have a more of an evil intention? And we've talked about a lot of great noir, and they all have that idea that someone presents one way and actually is another way. And this The whole film is doing that. It's like we present this person who feels uh, like our, you know, our entry point, our our conduit to this story. This is our sane person. And to reveal him at the end as being insane, not only insane, and I hope I'm using that term. I don't know if that's a politically correct term to use right now, insane, but to reveal him being insane and then not only insane, but aggressive really does mess with your belief of of who you should be listening to. And I think that that's something that we are constantly wrestling with. Oh, that person seemed to be so, I mean, it's it's what, what cults are made of, right? I mean, like you empathize with these people, whether it's Nexium or, you know, it's Charles Manson or, or, or any of these documentaries, they're all on Netflix, you know, whether it's a yoga cult or a band or whatever it is, they all present one way, but have these, you know, evil intentions. Like, oh, I, I went nuts for this period of time. I lived on this ranch. I did these things. This was wrong, but you, you can't, you can't see it. No, you can't see it. I mean, you think you see it. And that's what I really like about the trick of the framing device is because when you're watching it straight on, you know, main viewing, believing Francis the whole way through, you know, this is not a story about discovering where the evil is. It's about getting people to believe you and about writing it 
you know, it's it's kind of like Halloween. Like, you know that Caligari is your Michael Myers and he's stabbing people from the very beginning. And so it be, it's a very direct film about the fact that there is evil inside of men, especially in men who have authority. And what are you going to do about it? Well, but, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that is scary. That is like legitimately scary. But to me, what's even scarier is me being an audience who falls for it. Because I do think there is a thing in our brain where we see a person on screen, they look like the hero and we just trust them. You know, like, I mean, we just trust them. I'm like, oh, look at Francis. He looks like a nice guy. Whoever is on screen, like saying, I love this girl. I have a friend. I absolutely just as an audience member and probably like a naive sap, I'm like, I trust you. And so at the end of the movie to be like, oh God, I fell for this. It means that I feel like the Cesare, you know, I am the sleepwalker who sleepwalked as an audience member right into trusting you. And I mean, to me, this movie makes you feel like you are the hypnotized person. A hundred percent. And this movie is constantly flipping the script on you. And I want to just take it back to the beginning because the first time we see Francis's bride, right. Or his bride to be, um, she looks very ethereal. She's in a white dress, kind of walking with no expression on her face. Now, we believe that Francis is telling the truth, but it doesn't kind of compute with the way that she's presented. Did she go right? insane? Is this a story of her going insane? But we are given a very clean piece of information there, like, huh, what's going on there? But we choose to ignore it and we focus in on the storyteller, which is something I think we all do or not all do, I think that people are susceptible to. Like, I'm seeing one thing, I'm hearing another, and I'm just going to erase that. And then when you go into the film, or the the flashback, the story, whatever it is, the made-up, the dream, um, when you first meet Dr. Caligari, he looks evil and mean, and, and you're like, oh, who was this, you know, this kind of monster? And then you start to empathize for him when the the board or... The, the the people in the city aren't going to let him do his his show. Like all of a sudden, then he becomes empathetic, and you're like, oh, he's revolting against them. And then yeah, you his own authority want- that he's like, this authority is repressing me from my freedom of having a sleepwalker kill people. And you're like, well, yes, absolutely, I'm on your side. Like, what is that about? Well, yeah, and then so when you kill because, that but it's first like person, a framing, like that guy, the guy yeah. in the city sitting on this tall bench, he's looking down on him, and so you do get mad at the city for not wanting a murderous sleepwalker in their town. But you you start to, I think, question everything because that first kill is, is to let you believe that it's a revenge killing, right? And then the, the movie keeps on turning on you. Everything that you know is kind of like sands through the hourglass. It just kind of escapes your grasp. Every time you think you understand where it's going. And especially, and I have to say like, this movie does hold up and it's beautiful and it's interesting. Um, And if you watch it the way I did, where someone was just playing guitar solo underneath it, there's a lot of, by the way, that's the way that you can watch these silent films. And I, I recommend that you just, you buy it, you do the right thing. Don't watch the YouTube version. But there was one where it was a guy just like, just rocking out on the bass the entire time. But um, Ugh, I mean, I watched mine on Shutter, but then that YouTube version that I pulled the music from, I just yeah. really love that music. I mean, it's I mean, this so is like, can better. I just, this is like the music that that YouTube version plays when they're, when uh, Cesare has um, his girlfriend and is like running with her on the rooftops. Oh, I just loved it. Yeah. 
love I love deciding what music to play with a silent film because it's like, do you want to play something that recalls the era? Or do you, you know, something from that time period? So you're like, right. this is how it would have been, man. Because Caligari, if it ever had a written score, it's been completely lost. Like there is no, there so is, you know, some people like Chaplin, of course, like as we talked about, would later take a firmer hand and be like, right. here's my music. This is how I want it. Um, but Caligari, if it ever had anything set, we had, we have no idea what it was anymore. But they have, you know, people are writing new scores even today. Like a, a band named Tundra wrote a new score like just last year. I mean, this is oh, wow. how they score the... The reveal. This is the reveal of the twist. Oh, wow, I love that. And I just to go back to my point, which is this amount of twist, this amount of, of confusion over what the plot is. Think about it as an audience member in 1920. I mean, you've not seen such complicated filmmaking. We are used to that at some level here. But, but it's we still, still got us. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. It still gets, yeah. it still works. But I'm just saying it still works for us. And we're in, an, we're in a world in which twists are happening all the time. Yeah. Imagine back then the, the amount of twists here must have left the audience feeling angry and confused. So I can understand when going back to what your point was before, like how people felt manipulated by this and were, were angry at this film because it it's breaking the rules that we understand about cinema at a point when, you know, when we're, we're kind of still creating the rules. I mean, the scene that you just brought up is the one that like now I'm really thinking about over and over again, which is very first scene on the bench. You know, Jane, his girlfriend, who's played by the actress, a uh, little Dagover walks by. By the way, I, I'll give you like a fast forward of little Dagover's life while we're here, um, because all of these actors. Say are her name like, again. Little Dagover. Oh, little Dagover. I love that little, name. Yeah. That's like okay. a, that feels what, like little a little Dagover. Little Dagover feels like a Southern rapper. <laughs> Out of Atlanta, yeah. Lil, Lil Dagover. Dagover. It does actually. Yeah, but no, Lil Dagover, um, she was a huge star. She worked with everybody. She worked with Fritz Long. She worked with F.W. Bernau. She decides to stay in Germany uh, when the rise of Hitler happens. And she kind of skates by by doing that thing of like, I don't talk politics. I just star in comedies and musicals. Um, and Hitler really loved her. And Hitler would like ask her to dinner and she'd go. And she was fine. And people didn't bear a lot of resentment against her, which is not true for everybody in this film. But uh, Lil Dagover, hip hop star, early great grandmother of Fergie, uh, when she walks into this frame in the and. Our, and Frederick Fear, our Francis, is like, that's my fiance. It is so screwed up what you're describing that we're like, yeah, absolutely. Totally his fiance. When she doesn't acknowledge him, right. she's looking up at the sky. He tells us she's his, he's, that she's his fiance. And we're like, okay. I mean, how wild is that? Like, this is a completely random example, but it's on my mind. I tried to go um, par three golfing this week. I yeah, saw some of your Instagram stories I know. about I that. I loved a par three golf. What I did in Instagram is like, I I was having a stressed out day. I got a beer. I was golfing by myself. I was having a great time with the squirrels. You got to ask me. I started to golf oh. a little bit. I, <gasps> I 
I've been playing tennis. I've been really? doing golfing. I mean, this has been my new. I'm I've become a real sportsman, Amy. But oh, yeah, I took my first golf lesson. Yeah. Oh it was shit. Great. Well, bro, I got clubs. Let's go. I All mean, right, I'm terrible, go. but let's go. Oh, I mean, I just yeah. took my first lesson. But yeah, like some drunk guy comes up to me and he's like, I'll teach you how to golf lady. And that when this happens at the par three, you get so stuck, right? Because uh, you can't really get rid of him. And so these guys, he's like walking up. I was pretending that I didn't have an extra ball, so he wouldn't play with me. But he walks up to these guys at the um, hole behind and he's like, do you have a ball so I can play golf with my friend? And I'm like, how do you say that you're not my friend? And oh. now I'm thinking that I feel like kind of little dag, little dag over. I'm like, I couldn't deny that this man is telling people that I'm his friend and I felt really trapped. And it was just a weird thing of like, this guy was so drunk that he fell down in the leaves. And I was like, I don't know how to get rid of him. Anyway, long side angle of like <laughs> that moment of like a guy's like, you're my friend. Or he's like, she's her, my fiance. And like everything in this scene is telling us absolutely not. She does not right. acknowledge him. She does not know. She does not care. And yet as audience members, we listen. And that is so screwed up. And this is the stuff that makes it a horror film for me because I hate feeling this naive. No, but again, it's what we choose to accept and what we choose to throw out. I, I, I hate to make this show about what we're going through at this time, because I think it limits the scope. But I think we can talk about this in regards to people who don't believe in getting vaccinated, right? Yeah. There's information the that they are just Fauci people. Yeah. They're, they're just people that are not looking at all the information. Like if you type in any theory that you have heard that makes the vaccine seem scary or deadly or suspect, if you literally just type in that theory on Google, you will see dozens of articles debunking it and, and debunking it in a very clean and clear way. But, you know, these people who are getting these ideas are not doing that. They're leaving, they're taking what they want and not accepting the rest. And I think as a society, maybe this is what is the downside of social media. This is the downside of having all the information at our fingertips is that we can really just curate one point of view. And what this movie does is it continually shifts its point of view uh, to, I think, prove its point that, you know, sanity is in the eye of the beholder or, you know, that everyone here can be a hero and everyone here can be a villain. I actually just Googled while I was listening to you, if anybody has done any art that is the cabinet of Dr. Fauci, and apparently anti-vaxxers do not care about German expressionism. There is nothing yet. As opposed to the gazillion uh, Hillary Clinton as Nurse Ratchet memes that we found when we were doing our One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest episode. I, I love, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, I mean, talk about like things that you ignore, warnings that you ignore. I mean, the rise of Hitler does happen to everybody who's made this movie about authority. And that's really wild. I mean... The guy who plays Dr. Caligari himself, you know, the grand hypnotist, who I should also say, like, at this moment, hypnotism is, like, really, 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 really big in the medical community as kind of like a, a thing that people, I don't know, I don't know how to explain it exactly. Like, it's, I don't know what our comparison is for how hypnotism was seen by the public back then in 1920. Like, it was still seen as something pretty real could happen. Like maybe hypnotism could actually like make people murder other people. There's a lot of like uncertainty about it. Mm -hmm. 
There was this famous neurologist at the time. Um, his name is uh, Jean-Martin Charcot. He's a really complicated guy, as is like basically any doctor from the late 1800s, early 1900s. Like he's the guy who came up with the names for multiple sclerosis. He named Tourette's. He was also really into hysteria, you know, but he, yeah. he took like the progressive stance, I guess, for the day that hysteria wasn't just limited to women. You know, that hysteria didn't mean you had a uterus. He was like, guys can have hysteria too. He kind of had this sense that like it might have be trauma based. But he was like this showman guy who's like really into hypnotism. There's a line actually about him in um, Ram Stoker's Dracula in the original okay. novel about like guys who use mind control. But if you look up pictures of Jean-Martin Charcot, he basically looks like Dr. Caligari. They've exaggerated it. They've added okay. these stripes to his hair. They've given him Mickey Mouse gloves. I mean, aren't like Dr. Caligari's gloves are Mickey Mouse gloves. I don't know if Mickey Mouse stole his gloves from Dr. Caligari, but you know, those white mittens yes, with no, like, they three have the, lines? Yes, no, they have the little, yeah, I saw it. They have the I, exact same hands. Exact what if same you, hands. What if Mickey Mouse is Dr. Caligari and he's hypnotizing <laughs> all of us to buy more Lilo and Stitch merch? You know, this is not far off from my actual beliefs. What, that Walt Disney is, uh, uh, is this kind of uh, weird showman, this sideshow <laughs> Bob who is brainwashing Americans to do evil biddings, buy more plastic, uh, you know, uh, only watch Pixar movies? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd swap out Walt Disney himself for board of CEOs, but yes. But Werner Krauss, who played Dr. Caligari, like he is the guy who did not take any sort of lessons from this. He was like a huge actor of his day. Um, but he was also a very open anti-Semite. He became a Nazi. Uh, and there was a moment in the early 30s when Goebbels, if you were an actor in Germany, he made everybody sign kind of like a loyalty oath, like and sign, like, say like, what is your eth um, ethnic background? Mm -hmm. uh, and Werner Krauss like answered everything correctly, according to I Goebbels. I did that for Hulu, by the way. Oh God. What no. about Quibi? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so like in return, Gables named him like a state actor. He called him a cultural ambassador. And like Werner Cross became a huge, even bigger star than he was now. I mean, he was always a massive star, but he was like the star of like the most anti-Semitic film, I think, that Nazi Germany ever made, which I don't even want to share the title or what it is. But okay. he basically played like at least five Jewish characters. He played like a rabbi, several other Jewish characters in the background. And people say like up to 13 Jewish characters because he was trying to establish that all Jewish people are like related or I don't even know. Oh, God. I mean, he's a terrible guy, terrible guy, terrible terrible, terrible guy. But he, after the war, was like banned from performing in Germany and he died in obscurity. So that is what happens to our Dr. Caligari in this film. It depressing, wow. but it's yeah. like, no, it's, I mean, it's yeah. good. It's good to, you know, it, it, it good to know. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, know, the, the guy who's kind of the hero, if I can say, is our Cesare, you know, mm -hmm. is like our sleepwalking murderer. Cause that's Conrad Veidt. And we've actually talked about him once before. Uh, with dun, 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 Casablanca. Do you remember like he, the, the guy how at the time we were talking about how the guy who plays the Nazi in Casablanca was a yes. German actor and he like insisted on playing villains? That's Conrad Veidt because he was like forced into the army just like everybody else. He was really sick. So he got discharged in World War One. He became an actor. Um, but when Goebbels asked him to fill out that questionnaire, he wrote down he was Jewish, even though he wasn't because he was like, fuck this. 
And then Goebbels told him he'd never act in Germany again. So he came to America and he was like, I understand that I'm German. I understand it's the sound era. That means I have to play German characters because I can't do an American accent. And I understand that we're about to be at war. But if you're going to make me play German people, especially Nazis, make them villains. I will not play anybody but a villain if they have to be a Nazi. They have to be wow. bad, 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 bad. So that's why he's the guy who's like chasing Victor Laszlo around in Casablanca. He's a tremendous human being. Um, he's also, by the way, and now I'm like monologuing. but um, I love it. If you look up a film that he made after this, it's called The Man Who Laughs. So if you look up okay. Conrad Veidt in The Man Who Laughs, you will see the beginning of the Joker, the beginning of the look of the Joker. He is the guy that the original Joker was just modeled on. Really? I kind of want, will you Google that now? I want you to see it. It's pretty crazy. Okay. Oh, wow. Right? Yes. The smile, the hairline, everything. Like, that is the Joker. That is the beginning of him. Yeah. Yeah. He's wonderful. But, like, how wild is it that here's this movie about, like, there are people telling lies. There are people in authority who are manipulating other people to kill. There are bad things happening in our small towns. Trust no one. And everybody, you know, by the awful look of being German, has to make a decision. And like all three of these major leads make different decisions. And I'm not bringing up the guy who plays Francis, um, Frederick Fuhrer, because he was kind of not really a star and he seemed sort of vague. Like he was not, there wasn't really much about him after okay. that, even though he's like our lead. But everybody else, you know, was major in their own ways and made really polarizing decisions. That's so, I mean, well, of course, I mean, you know, and this is an interesting thing because we are experiencing you know, a film at a time where every it, it's, this is the end of American graffiti, like where everyone goes, everyone's going to be making a choice here. And it really is, you've painted a very disparate picture of where everyone went and how they kind of continued their life and careers. Yeah. And I mean, I love that it is our Conrad Veidt, like our Cesare, who makes the best choices of everybody, you know, kind of the, the person who's playing this victim. Like, I feel like as a, as like a soldier who was discharged for being sick, who didn't want to do any of this, like, I feel like he really brings something beautiful to Cesare. Like, I, Cesare is like our murderer, but I don't know. Do you feel like you blame him? I feel like he looks so thin and so pitiful. Like, that scene where he wakes up for the first time and you're watching how he does that scene. Like, he isn't just like, my eyes pop open and dun dun, you know? He's got all these little twitches, like his eyelashes, no, nostrils, cheeks, like, and he looks horrified to be alive. Like, he's he horrified I mean, he, to be awake. He's brainwashed and or experiencing PTSD. There's there's that element of it. Maybe I'm reading the PTSD in there, but there's this thing. And I think what is interesting about that character is that he, like, love kind of shakes him up a little bit. Like, you know, or he, you, that's a moment where you feel like this other side of him comes out. This part of him that is more him than the the weapon. I mean, he's a weapon. He is literally a blunt object, or at least the way we look at him in the movie. Like, he's not a character as much as he is just a tool. And that moment is when he, not when he wakes up, but when he sees the woman is when he he does, like, something inside of him awakens and he actually becomes something that's a little bit deeper than than the way we've seen him, which is just a skinny stick. I mean, he's, a, you know, he's, you know, he's basically a robot with a knife. Yeah, he's like a, a dowsing rod for murder. Yeah. Yeah. And then it, I guess he just, 
I'm not quite sure why he dies. He just sort of gets tired of running or he is not built for running. I don't, yeah. I don't know. Like, it's like he runs out of batteries. Look, I mean, that's like me. I mean, you know, you put me on a track. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'm going to give you a good couple minutes, but then that's it. I'm just going to just lay down there. <laughs> just wait for it. But it is sweet to see him when we go to the end of the film, like in that framing device where he's just like a sweet little guy holding flowers. Like, oh, Cesare, I'm glad you're not a murderer. Do you think that he really is psychic and can tell the truth? I mean, this made me think of our conversation yes, like last week about not wanting to talk to Ouija boards. Like if somebody well, was like, here's a guy who can read your future, I would never ask how long I would live. Well, no, I hate that kind of shit. Um, don't get me involved in it. Like I, like, I don't want to know the future. I don't want it because I think part of the problem with that is, and I may have already said this, it puts something bad in your mind. My mom went to go see one of these psychics and she told me something. And from when I was a kid, it just stuck in my head. It's not good. You don't want to have someone have that kind of authority on you to tell you something here. But this, why, where this even comes from is that Hans Genowitz, like he saw a fortune teller who predicted that he would survive the first world war. Um, and that helped him kind of think about the scene of predicting someone's death. You know, uh, this idea that like, these people couldn't plant something in you. These people feel like, and this is the charlatan nature of this. I, I used to love the show called Penn and Teller Bullshit because I think people are susceptible to these things. We want, we want someone to take the guesswork out of our life. Tell us that we're going to fall in love. Tell us we're going to be okay. Tell us that, you know, you, we, we want it, but we don't want it. It's a very interesting thing. But to this idea of like the power of this, so I don't think, I don't think that this person is psychic. I think all this person is doing is, telling you what the narrative will be and then creating it. Yeah. 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 Like you wouldn't have killed Francis if Francis didn't ask. No. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But exactly. I do want to throw a tiny grenade into this conversation though. Let's do it. Okay. So now we're talking about it as though the framing device is completely real. Right. Mm -hmm. And so like Caligari is the same person. Francis is the crazy person. And I, I feel kind of okay using crazy because this is a movie where people are like literally like thrown into straight jackets. Yeah, and like this is an away. asylum movie. Yeah. It is an asylum movie. Um, but there is something in here that to me feels a little bit like the Inception spinning top. Okay. Which is um, in Francis's story, we see Dr. Caligari getting thrown into a uh, getting thrown into like a cell, basically. Mm -hmm. Right. Getting mm -hmm. straight jacketed, thrown into a bed and thrown into a cell. In the cell, like everything else in uh, Francis's like mind is this kind of German expressionist, broken, twisted thing. Interestingly, the only thing that doesn't feel broken looking in it is when he goes to his like dream of Jane's house. Like Jane's house has more of like a soft kind of floral petal curvature look to it. That's like in contrast to all of the hard angles. But in the framing device at the end... When Francis is the one straight jacketed and thrown into a cell, just like what happened to Caligari, it's the same cell and it looks exactly the same. And so even though we're supposedly out of the like heightened dream state, the cell is identical. And that kind of does make me wonder if maybe Francis is telling the truth. Because... Huh. Like little things seem to change. You know, when you go back to the asylum in the framing device at the end. Right. The main room of the asylum, they're shooting at a slightly different angle. So it doesn't look quite as crazy. And, you know, the framing device itself, it's 
pretty normal looking. You know, there's a yeah. there's more like a tree, a bench. It doesn't look as crazy as everything in the middle, but the asylum is the same. And I don't know if it's one of those things where they just like ran out of money and couldn't build another asylum because this movie wasn't made for a ton of money. Yeah. Or or if there's any kind of a subtle callback. And it's so hard to tell because like I know when you make a movie, I mean, you're imagining the day they made this, like the builders, you know, which by the way, like high five to Ayatsi. I hope the strike works out for them. Um, yeah. Very much so. But like you have these builders and maybe just the builders on the day of that set were like, oh, we don't have any time to build another set. We can't build another asylum or like a softer asylum. We can't change anything. And so it stays the same. I think that but that even, probably is right based on yeah. what we were saying earlier about like they couldn't, they were rationing electricity. I think a movie that is so blatant with its switch, like it switches. I don't think they would be so subtle at the end. I don't know if that, like, I don't know if we're putting on the subtlety of like, cause I think that that is much more of a, a modern day, modern day being like from the, what, like the late sixties to now, you know, idea of like, what do you think? You know, I, I don't think the movie. I don't think the movie is going for that. I don't. I mean, that's my gut. Um, but if it is, and I'll go down that road for you. I mean, wow. I mean, it would be the ultimate final twist. <laughs> I mean, that's just what I love about the relationship of between being an audience member and watching a movie. You know, is right. a movie is like the product of so many people's work and so many people's decisions. You know, like. This movie as it stands is not the image of the screenwriters and it wasn't even the image of the director. Like he wasn't necessarily known as being like a German expressionist guy and he didn't mm -hmm. do that many other major films that people have really cared about. You know, it's really kind of the production designers, this guy Herman Warm, Walter Roig, uh, Walter Reinman coming up with the look. Producers agreeing to go along with it. And together, this collaboration takes place that nobody has all of their hands on completely. Like nobody right. has a complete grip on and it allow and yet like us as the audience we're here 100 years later like analyzing it talking about it and choices that you make on the day can inadvertently let you read so much into something like i was actually talking about this you know um our friends at nightstream they have a film festival starting right now ta da like if you want to watch some really amazing films google nightstream get your pass uh to watch some stuff online one of the things is that, like, I um, talked to David Lowry about The Green Knight, you know, one of my favorite movies this year. And we talked a bit Amazing, about, like, how, way. as a director, it's so fucking good. As a director. By the way, they're selling that sword right now in the A24 <gasps> store. Oh, my god. They goodness. also have, like, a D&D &D kit. Yeah, it's awesome. Wow. A24 is the shit, man. They they're do the everything great. They're the shit. But, like, he was talking about how, as a director, like, people come up to him with readings of his movies that he didn't even, like, intend, but that they're there. And if they're there, they're valid. And so I love well, that relationship of like, I mean, to me, I'm a big believer in, and not that this is like something that I traffic in, but what, once you make art, you don't get to determine how people perceive it anymore. Like you've made it with an intent, but if that intent triggers, like, I don't think there's any wrong way to look at art. Like if you look at something, whether it's, uh, you know, a movie or a painting, whatever it may be, I don't have to describe what art is, um, you do. What is it? Tell me. Um, well, I think, you know, garbage pail kids, that's kind of like <laughs> art, right? Because it's oh, fun. It's different and saying a lot of stuff. They always um, make me so sad for the little kids. <laughs> nah, also, who was your garbage pail kid? Mine was Acne Amy. And I was like, that just upset me. Like, I, you know, Acne Amy, it felt too real. It wasn't like Ooh, having sharks for one, hands. Yeah, yeah it was. Um, cool. I don't know if I had one that I like totally connected with. Uh <laughs> Like, I, I feel like there was a Paul that was playing video games and his head exploded, but maybe, maybe I'm wrong about that, Paul. I mean, 
it like oh you know what it was amy there was this it was a really disturbing one it was one with it was like the way that you would mount a deer oh god but it was the a baby's head or a child's head and it was like wall paul or something like that it was like you know, oh, I'm like, Googling it right now, off the wall, Paul. And you have yes. a little pacifier in your mouth. Oh, oh, that's terrible. And then, oh my God. And then here's the other one, because I just Googled it now too. <gasps> this is the other one that freaked me out. Peeled Paul. Oh, I'm looking at Peeled, Peeled Paul. Paul. He's terrible. Yeah, he's taking off his skin. He has a whole closet full of like skins. Like, like oh, but you just see muscle. Ugh, it's so Ugh. disgusting. You've got a so, lot. You've got Punchy Paul. He's inside of a mouth punching a uvula. You've I don't remember got, any of those. I just remember those two. Ugh. I remember I remember those. You've got but anyway, Paul, he's got acne too, and he's writing yeah, Garbage Pill of- Kids was here in his own acne. Ugh. You've got Pillager Paul. Pill- he's cool. And Paul Bunyan. God, you have a lot. Oh I really think I have acne Paul. Amy. They make um, me so sad for ooh, the Pop Garbage Pill Kids. Like, can you I mean, imagine? there's so much acne. Um, yeah, I look, really only have acne Amy. You can't do anything with the name Amy. It's so vowel heavy. <laughs> well... That is art, obviously. But uh, in doing that movie Happily that I just did, <gasps> um, the Ben David Grabinski had an idea of what the movie was saying. And he never revealed it to us. And I talked to him about it and I had my own thoughts on it. And he might say, oh, yeah, that, that, that's a little bit there. And I think when you reveal what your intent is, you start to tell the audience how they should perceive it. And I think that that actually... What we are, I mean, going back to what we're saying, we're looking for someone to tell us that's what you should be getting from this. And then you feel like that that's the reading and that's not, you know, that's that's the right way and every other way is wrong. Yeah. And I think it's really cool and a sign of a really interesting director. And I, obviously David Lowry is like this. It's like where he's not going to say like, that's what I meant there. I think even Paul Thomas Anderson stopped doing commentary tracks or because there was one commentary track that he did where he explained a little bit too much. And I think he regretted that decision, like let yourself think about it. It's the, it's the best part I think of, of going to movies. Cause it's the conversation afterwards. And, you know, right now there's a million YouTube channels, like they ending explain malignant. This is what happens. Like, I don't need to understand. I get it. Like if I, but I think people are always looking for like, tell me the deeper meaning. We're so ingrained with like somebody else be the expert. But when it's, I think when it's art, it's, it's not, there is no expert. No, I absolutely agree. And I mean, that feels like it's kind of skating along the edge of a conversation I was thinking about with this movie too, which is like the whole cinema sins in, of it all, you know, explanations mm-hmm. and what's wrong with like, this is the kind of movie that doesn't at all care about practical realism. No. You know, at all. And I like, I want to talk about the value of realism because it's something I go back and forth on. Like, I don't, care that much about practical realism as much as I care about emotional realism. Do you know, like these characters feel emotionally real to me, even though it's big. Like I believe that you love your friend. I believe that you love this man. I believe that you want to protect people. I believe, I believe the emotions in here and I don't have to believe the like, can Cesare run across rooftops? Well, but I mean, that's that we, our whole, I think storytelling is all about the, the metaphor, right? The, the the fable it's like there like no one is worried about you running to a witch's house you know uh you know and getting put in her pot of stew with Hansel and Gretel like that that story isn't there to be like beware of witches in the woods uh or beware of the wolf who's going to dress up like your grandma it it is teaching you things that you should know about 
you know, how to interact with the world. And it's putting it in this bigger way because no one's going to hear a story about, wait, when you go outside and look both ways across the street, make sure you understand where you're going, where you came from. And, you know, so I think that we, we come from a culture that, or we come from a, a line of storytelling that is based really in not what happened, but how does it make you feel the emotional realism? Like, what is it, what is it trying, what is it, what is it trying to tell you? What is it trying to do? Not like, not the exact thing. I mean, you know, you can get into the Bible is essentially that as well. Like did all the, you know, you know, it's, it's, these are stories because stories are easier to tell than, um, you know, a, a real life event yeah. in a certain way. No, I agree. And I think that some films, I think I check out of films where I feel like they don't get that calibration completely right. I mean, with Inception, for example, like I don't really believe in the grand love story between Maul and Dom Cobb, our friend mm-hmm. Dom Cobb. Dom Cobb. Like in not caring about their romance, which is such so central to it, like not believing it, like not believing that those two characters have much to talk about and like really get along. It hurts the film for me because the emotional realism I'm supposed to buy I don't buy like I'll buy all the dream stuff, but I don't buy the emotional stuff. But well, I, I do that, believe I that, when like, Leonardo yeah. DiCaprio was like in love with Kate Winslet in Titanic. I believe that so deeply that I don't that I will. Another go movie that uses with. a very similar framing device here. Exactly. Uh, but, I, you know, I guess, you know, this is a whole conversation again about Nolan. I think that Nolan shorthands emotional relationships because it's sort of like and, and they like it's sort of like the aside. Oh, and they and they actually love each other. But yeah. anyway, so yeah. what I was telling you was this, you know, it's, it, you know, and, I, and and not that that's a bad thing, but it like, I, I agree with you. Like sometimes when an emotional connection is stronger, I will buy anything else. It's sort of like you can pick apart my theory before every movie is terrible. It's just what you choose to like, <laughs> like you're choosing to believe it. Like, like, and, and like everything is terrible. Like everything can be picked apart. Um, and there maybe are people out there that don't want to give themselves over to something like that and don't want to like allow themselves to be sucked into it. And there are people that do. And then, then, then there are people probably that are more, that's probably more the middle ground, which is like, yeah, sometimes I am sucked in. Sometimes I'm not, you know, it, and I think that, I don't know, this is a, you know, a dumber conversation, but I do, I do think that this idea that you get out of anything, what you put into it. I was just reading this book where there was a, there was an assignment to stare at a painting for three hours. Wow. That's all you could do. You can't go on your phone. You can, you, can, you can stand up, but you can't take your eyes off this painting. And the, the writer of the book talks about this connection that he starts at. First, it's like, okay, how much time has passed? Oh, God, only five minutes. Okay, sit back down. Now, how long am I going to be here? Oh, do I have to go to the bathroom? Like this idea where you start to fight with the idea of time, but then as you actually sit and you actually stare at this thing, the painting just opens up and you start to see all these things and it becomes this incredibly interactive experience uh, as it comes to life, but it only comes to life in the time it takes to really consider it. Um, You know, I don't know how that all ties into anything, but I love the idea of that exercise. And I love the idea that, you know, everything, you know, maybe if something is bad, we're not looking at it as good. And to go back to the Ganja and Hess discussion uh, from earlier, it's, 
yes, certain things may not present like a normal film. And it's the way I feel about The Room as well. But when you like kind of lean in and stare at it and like, what is this choice? And why was that made? And what was this? Like, yes, you can laugh at the 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 base level of filmmaking of The Room. But when you kind of like start to think about a person's mind and you, you talked about that that film festival, that Night's Dream, mm-hmm. you know, we introduced movies for Night's Dream and I picked Nothing But Trouble. I, oh, I hate Nothing pick. But Trouble. You what? But I mean, I hate it. I, I hate it. And I love it. But what I love about it is it's the purest vision of what is going on in Dan Aykroyd's mind. Like, it's such a crazy, disgusting, weird wow. movie. But that's why I'm like kind of repulsed, but also incredibly intrigued <laughs> by it. Like, I mean, you know. Oh, that's a fun pick. I did another Friedkin. I did Bug because, you know, I just worship Bug. I think that movie is so wonderful. In my um, my boyfriend, Adam, has been like, he's introducing Blue Velvet and he is really researching the hell out of it. He's the most intensive researcher I ever know. Oh, he wants wow, to like, really, it. he loves Blue Velvet. Um, well, but like, oh, to, to your art thing, by the way, like I, that was fascinating. Cause like, I have been trying to teach myself more about art. And the one thing I've been doing when I have been going to museums is I, to try to get a painting to open up to me is I look at it and I try to find the one detail I know I would have missed if I wasn't staring at it, mm-hmm. you know? And I like, look, to see like, where is like the brushstroke that I find most interesting or what is, what is like, I try to find something in it that you wouldn't notice if you weren't staring at it really closely. And every time I do that, a painting becomes like five times more interesting. Yeah. I think that you have to give yourself over to the experience and not just be so critical. And I think that we're in a time where everything is so critical. And I think this brings it all back to the beginning, which is we're coming out of World War One. I. I think people are being critical of of everything around them. And and it may speak to why this film, and I'm guessing was received not poorly, but why it created some kind of controversy. What, what, I mean, was the response to this movie a little bit mixed? It was, it was picketed here in Los Angeles. Um, oh, wow. But for kind of complicated reasons that I'd love to get into, it doesn't play here in Los Angeles until May, 1921. Um, but it's, it was pulled. Because there was a demonstration happening here in the American film industry. Mind you, in 1921, Hollywood is only like 10, 11 years old, depending on when you want to start counting. Okay. The idea of the film industry being centered here is still really up for grabs. Um, By that point, I think like 95% of all films in America were shot here. But the idea of L.A. Hollywood being the center of filmmaking everywhere was only now solidifying just because like Europe got derailed by by the war. Everybody was fighting it in their backyard and we were still able to make movies here. And that's, if it weren't for World War I, who knows if Hollywood would have been the center of of filmmaking. So at this moment, stuff is still feeling kind of tenuous. And um, like the American Legion here and the Hollywood workers across the board, like set makers, writers, everybody are terrified that German cinema might become more powerful and lucrative. So they were furious that America was importing a German movie to Hollywood. And so they did this picket that was basically like xenophobic. It's kind of like how we were in the 80s when we were mad at all Japanese cars. And we're like, your Japanese cars might destroy our industry. They pulled that on uh, Dr. Caligari, not for any reason, except for the fact that it was German. And this caused like a whole back and forth in the newspapers here. Lots of editorials, people being like, yeah, get out of here. People calling it like shameful that Americans would be picketing a German movie and being so closed minded about it. Um, The critics who weren't invested in this fight 
they saw it as like a really interesting shakeup of Hollywood movies because they thought Hollywood movies were getting kind of boring. Like uh, a writer in New York said it was like a danger city to the American industry and said, quote, American producers have got to shake themselves out of the ruts of machine production and mere money squandering and try to see the full possibilities of their art, which is a thing that they could be saying 100 years later today. Um, the negative reviews really didn't happen here so much. Most people are like, this is really crazy, especially because they weren't quite as familiar with expressionism. They weren't like right. judgy about it the same way European artists were. It was We, we were actually calling it cubism because it wasn't even called German expressionism yet. So we were like, this cubic movie is so crazy because it was like <laughs> like a superficial wow, I think, yeah. here. But people in Europe, specifically French filmmakers, were the ones who really tore into it. So I'm going to quote two of them here. Um, the first is Jean Cocteau. So Jean Cocteau, of course, like 20 years later, he does probably the famous Beauty and the Beast before Walt Disney and his fleet of CEOs do it. Uh, and he said that Caligari was, quote, the first step toward a grave error, which consists of flat photography of eccentric decors instead of obtaining surprise by means of the camera. And another filmmaker, Jean Epstein, he would do a couple of years later this really famous adaptation of um, Edgar Allan Poe's The Fall of the House of Usher that he wrote with Louis Manuel. He said, quote, if you have to say that a film has fine decors, I think it is better not to speak of it at all. The film is bad. Caligari represents a grave sickness of cinema. Everything in Caligari is decor. The decor itself, first of all, then the actors who are painted and tricked out like the decor. Finally, the light, unpardonable sacrilege in the cinema, which is also painted with lights and shadows mendaciously distributed in advance. So the film is nothing but a still life, all the living elements killed by a brush. Wow. I know. I know. Mendaciously distributed lights and shadows. Mendaciously. I love I kind of love I that. I love it. Yeah. So yeah. Like the people who felt like art was personal. I mean, Jean Epstein working with Louis Bunuel, like he's not a guy who's anti-art, but he I think just subjected kind of on principle. Principle, yeah. Yeah. So that it's like the closer you are to something, the more you get your knives out. I think you're totally right. And and because it's also, I think there's always, I mean, isn't there something that like you see yourself in, like you're mad at yourself that you didn't get to do it. And then you start to see the bad, like, it's like, again, it's looking at something because you want to be doing it, but then you're also mad that they, maybe they're doing the wrong thing. I don't know. I think there's a lot of, uh, I, I, I understand that, that the person that's closest to it would be the most critical about it. Yeah, I get it too. But should we talk sequels? What? It was a sequel? <laughs> yes. Well, okay. So Caligari made its money back. It actually was a decent hit because it was so cheap in part. Really cheap movie. Uh, so it made its money back. Lots of the filmmakers involved were like, we should do a sequel. But they couldn't agree on really who owned the rights and nobody could ever motivate in time to get it done. Uh, so they kind of lost its steam and it never happened. But in 1962... Okay. There was a film called The Cabinet of Caligari, and you just, let's just play the trailer. Stop! Stop! You can't escape this shattering emotional experience that takes its place with the screen's most distinguished classics, that dares explore uncharted realms of exciting wizardry, that will ignite a storm of controversy with its strength and candor. 
How old were you when you first let a man make love to you? Next, who was he? Next, how did you feel at the time? Next, how did you feel afterward? What did you feel? What did you think? Were you pleased, frightened, ecstatic, disgusted? What did he say? What words did you speak? That's what I want to know. Now, tell me. Now, now, all of it. Robert Block, author of Psycho, creates a new masterpiece of suspense. The Cabinet of Caligari. You may loathe him, acclaim him, accept him, reject him. But you'll talk about Caligari for months to come. 1962 is so interesting because I really did feel like, why not remake this movie? It's still, it's still really interesting. Like you could remake it now. So many people would not even know that it's a, they wouldn't know the twist, I think. Yeah. I mean, the crazy thing about the sequel is it wasn't even supposed to be a sequel. They just were like, I don't know, it's an asylum movie. And somebody put the title on it. They're like, we'll call it a sequel. And they were like, what, what? This was not intended, but they went with it. And then somebody else did it more deliberately uh, 25 years later, and that is this version of Dr. Caligari. Oh, it just has to be seen to believed. Every so often, there comes a movie so sick, so twisted, so incredibly insane, the critics shout, Oscar calling, Oscar calling. Naughty, naughty, naughty. Unending torment. Meet Dr. Caligari. She's chic. She's hip. She's morally reprehensible. She's evil. She's a flat-out sadist. Sex Nazi. How do I make you feel? My feelings are like filthy prayers. I'm a juice dove. I'm a twitching skee-ball. And you won't let me shiver. Bon appetit. She's the granddaughter of the infamous Dr. Caligari. To her, your brain's an open house. You've got to learn to just say yes. The critics cheered when Dr. Caligari took the midnight movie circuit by storm. Perhaps I should prescribe a sedative for you. This movie screams art. I got an EKG you can dance to. Everybody limbo. The LA Times stamped its approval. Consistently outrageous and imaginative. Racy, irreverent, and radical. Dr. Caligari. The twisted passions of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, the all-consuming hunger of eating Raoul, and the outrageous excess of pink flamingos. Describe your life in three words or less. She's the surrealistic psychiatrist with the totally camp couch, Dr. Caligari. She's got the cure for midnight madness. Oh my God, that is amazing. And by the way, just seemingly playing on the name. Because like, I knew this name before I ever saw this movie. I had no idea what it was. I stumbled upon it because um, we were talking about silent films and you had referenced this and uh, and I watched it one night on Criterion, but I didn't know anything about the plot. And that just seems like they're just they're just drafting off the the name, right? I mean, that's not, that's not a remake. <laughs> You're going to have to watch it for yourself, man. All right, I'm in, I'm in. <laughs> uh, but then, of course, I mean, it's real descendants would be like... Of course, film noir. And of course, Tim Burton. I mean, when you look at Tim Burton, especially like his early stuff, I don't know if you've ever seen Tim Burton's um, episode of Fairytale Theater that he did very, 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 very early on. He did um, Aladdin. Was was that the one that was uh, hosted by uh, Shelley Duvall? Yes, yes. My oh, I favorite love that show movie. Of all I love that as a show when I was a kid. Yeah. It's so good. And so Burton jumped in just to do the Aladdin episode, which starred. Uh, Robert Carradine, I believe, of Revenge of the Nerds as Aladdin, and okay. Valerie Bertinelli as the Jasmine character. But there's a moment when he goes inside to like talk to the genie, and he like goes to steal this um, gemstone, and it could not be more Caligari. 
because you can tell like it's Tim Burton just out of art school, has almost no money. Like there wasn't a ton of money in the show anyway. He's not having like endless CG. He has to do stuff with like cardboard. Yeah. And it's just perfect. And it like launches his whole career. You know, the, he, this kind of look, he just embraces and it becomes synonymous with him. I was thinking as I watched this that Dr. Caligari himself looks a lot like the Babadook. So I feel like this movie is just still with us in every single way. I, you know, I think it will always be with us. I think that, you know, the reason why we didn't even talk about Frankenstein in What Goes to Space was because, you know, we were really, I don't think we were holding off, but this idea that it was interesting, it was really, it it did some very beautiful things, but was is that a, a good enough representation of horror? I, I believe right out of the gate, I would put this in, I would put this forward over those, uh, those types of horror movies, those, was it the, uh, the dark universe? Is that what they were calling them back then? Uh, uh, gosh, yeah. I think so. Something like that. Yeah. And uh, I mean, honestly, yeah. like I do think, and not to get the pitchforks out, but if one of your main arguments for alien is like this art world look that Giger created, you know, a guy from the art world coming in and changing the direction of landscape of how films look and sets and stuff with that kind of biomechanical aesthetic, I mean, this is an earlier amazing example of the art world shaping how we have seen film for a hundred years, like a hundred years. And I'm in awe of it. I am too. And I I think it it holds up. It's really great. Uh, You know, I'm so glad we got to talk about it on the show. And I'm excited to see where the rest of this conversation goes and how we start to see this infiltrating those other films. I think I that, know. you know, I think, yes, we'll always see a very direct correlation with people who make things that visually are the same, but, you know, I, I, just like the exorcist, I think that these movies lay down a groundwork for modern horror that, uh, it truly, once you see it, you can unsee it. And we really want to our audience to kind of help us pick where we're going next. And I figured right now would be a good time to tell them what we're watching next week. Can I tell you, Paul, that horror, horror Scaretober uh, scares me more than any other series we do because it is the series where I want to watch like literally everything and I don't want to stop. And I feel endlessly, endlessly. I wish October could last forever. Um, but that said, oh, my God, there are so many great titles. And the one that really pops out that I feel like we have not done a movie like this so pure in shock and horror and fear it's got to be the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Amy, I'm so excited that we're doing this next. I've never seen this movie. Ah! Oh. Never have seen oh. this movie. You're going to have to hug Sergeant Meatball so hard. And I'm excited to keep exploring this conversation of horror movies asking the question, why does evil happen in Texas? Oh, why does evil happen in Texas? What happened was true. The most bizarre and brutal series of crimes in America.
is the movie that is just as real. Just as close. Just as terrifying as being there. Even if one of them survives, what will be left? The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. After you stop screaming, you'll start talking about it. Okay, everyone. Spooky season is really underway now. We will see you next week for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's all for today's show. And remember to rate and review this show. Tell people about it. It really, truly helps. A big thank you to our super producer, Josh Richmond, and our audio engineer extraordinaire, Devin Bryant. Thank you guys for making this show sound so amazingly great. And our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds, for making sure that this show runs on time and that we have our research at hand. I also want to give a shout out to Kim Troxel for her amazing art. And if you want to keep this conversation going, please do so at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. There's an unspooled section there where we have debates and votes and polls. We also have our Facebook group, the Unspooled Podcast Facebook group. That is still an amazing place to be. I want to give a huge uh, shout out to everyone in all those forums for keeping these conversations going. And I also want to let you know that you can head on over to tpublic.com to check out our Unspooled merch. That's right. Go to tpublic.com slash stores slash Unspooled to see what we got in the store. And that's all. We'll see you next week on Unspooled. Thank you.